Chris promises he's not going to bore us with a history lesson in just a minute here, but I just wanted to, and I hope it's kosher that uh, I use this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Because we're talking about what's happening now with the NBA and MLB and people are uh, striking or boycotting, whatever you want to call it. And Clint was on. Clint did a lot of reading. I could tell he was up to snuff on a lot of things, and it's good that he's doing his research. But he said something that kind of stuck with me, and it's rubbing me the wrong way about nothing's going to change. That, that hit me, and I was like, wow. And I'm thinking about it now. It's like, oh, man, that's tough. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that that's where he's at. But I, I know because he's a smart guy, and he's obviously researching. He's going he's gonna to come around. I promise you that. And, and then I, I saw this thing from Martin Luther King Jr., and I hope it's kosher that I read this. And I think it's poignant. He said, and I quote, the ultimate measure of a man... I'm going to add a word, or woman, is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy, end quote. And I think that sort of speaks to what's happening right now. What the NBA players did matters. And it is something. And we can make the change. That's, the, that's, the vo- that's how the vocabulary has to change. We can make this happen. We have to make this happen. Change it again. We must, because people being shot in the black, if you're in the back, if you're black, or indigenous rights being taken away again, or 71% of the, stop, uh, the police stop checks are done to indigenous men, dis- disproportionately represented, it has to change, and it must. Chris, Trump yeah, well, won't, I mean, he's not going to get win, is he, again, Trump? Well, well just before we get to that, like, okay, this, sorry. what's happening? No, 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 but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm segueing. But, like, look, look what's happening, right? <laughs> you're, you're, don't, don't screw with the segue. I'm doing a thing here. Okay, what? Yeah, right, what's happening with the, with the sports, you mean? Well, that, but also, like, I mean, I was watching the Kenosha video earlier, and I was just like, I'm, like, I'm sorry, what? Like, mm-hmm. like, like, this, like, we're reporting this militias just running around, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, like, there's a thing now that we talk about that's totally legitimate, mm-hmm. and it's not. And, you know, like, and if you look at, you know, what happened in New Zealand, the guy got sentenced there today, and we're talking about, you know, it affects us in Canada, you know, we're talking about maybe like the, you know, the NBA or the NHL, like we love our NHL, like, we're talking about maybe taking a a few days off that to recognize something that's happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. And in the US, you've got a a choice between, uh, you know, a rabbit can of cheese whiz, Mm -hmm. and you've got a sundowning dinosaur mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest who doesn't have his wits about him yeah yeah and and so yeah i was like well those uh, who ignore history are doomed to repeat it and so i spoke to a, a historian from mcgill university jason opal he is the associate professor and department chair in history and classical studies at mcgill he says we have to be careful or you know well yeah no all of us we have to be careful because trump might be a shoo-in because of two things white supremacy and existing financial inequality. So I spoke to him and I asked him if he had been watching the recent DNC and RNC conventions. Yes, I've been keeping an eye on both. And uh, the DNC actually unfolded, I think, pretty much as I was expecting. Um, the RNC is much more predictable and has begun that way. How do you mean it's much more predictable? Well, the DNC, the Democrats um, are kind of planning a more conventional campaign, which is to say they have to assemble the various interest groups and ideological uh, segments of their party, which is quite broad, 
it reaches from you know kind of centrist people who would fit very easily into a uh, liberal or even conservative party in Canada, all the way over to avowed democratic socialists. So they have to assemble that group and they're basically put together a, a convention that that did so. And for three nights, you kind of heard from the whole spectrum uh, of people across the across the spectrum uh, of the party. And then it culminated in a clearly very well planned and kind of disciplined message by Biden, which is largely about COVID. That, that was the real sort of, you know, uh, message. He had let other people do the speaking for him about other issues. Whereas the RNC, so, you know, that's, that's fairly predictable. That's, that's how most of these conventions go. Um, different this year only because it's, hunt, you know, uh, remote because of COVID. The RNC, however, is completely different and unpredictable because the Republican Party is so much now about Trump, about Mr. Trump, more so than I think it has been ever about any of its leaders. And you could say in some ways that the Republican Party itself as an institution is actually quite weak now. And it kind of channels uh, uh, the president. And so that makes their convention and their strategy and their messaging much more unpredictable. You say the party itself is quite weak now, and yet uh, you wrote a piece a week ago saying that Trump has a, a good chance of winning more than most people might think. Uh, the, the Republican Party as an institution, I think, is, is fairly weak in the sense that it's you know, kind of beholden to Mr. Trump. But Mr. Trump is, is very strong because he draws on some traditional bases of support, which are extremely deep, that run extremely deep in American history. So I wrote the piece because I feel like a lot of people focus on the loudest and most visible parts of the Trump um, sort of uh, party, uh, people who wear MAGA hats and, you know, kind of extreme Trump supporters who are, of course, important. But there are lots of other, um, generally speaking, conservative leaning people, overwhelmingly white in the United States who, strange as it, may, as it may sound, see Mr. Trump as a safe or even obvious choice. And they might not be out there at Trump rallies, um, especially these days, and that's kind of dangerous, but they could very easily, they probably will vote for him. And that's why I think the, the, the election will be a very close run thing. And that Mr. Trump has a considerable chance of winning, um, even without a game-changing event. Right. So that base hasn't changed. And that that's kind of why I wanted to start off by talking about the conventions, is because I watched a bit of the speeches. Sure. And I, I, my, my question was, who, who are these people talking to? Who, who are they trying to reach? And so when it comes to the, the Republican convention, were they talking to the, the, those types of voters that you expected, expected them to try to be reaching? I still, that's a very good question. I think that the RNC um, is, because it's so unconventional as a convention, because the party is now so unconventional, I don't think they really have a consistent message. Um, you know, I think it's largely about sort of firing up the, the most extreme base of, the, of, of, the, of Trump support. But there are also lots of voters, um, kind of, they would consider themselves to be actually not terribly political voters who would kind of lean to Trump anyway, regardless of how the conventions go, because of some deep-rooted factors in American history. So, you know, by, by contrast, the Democrats were really delivering a disciplined message to a bunch of potential constituencies. So I'll, you know, uh, list them like this. Suburban women, that's a big uh, demographic. Um, urban populations of all kinds and in, in major urban centers. Young voters. Uh, voters of color, um, minorities, 
and to some extent also um, some older voters, especially because of the pandemic. So you know, they, they, they are actually targeting a message to each of those constituents. The RNC isn't really doing that. They're, they're largely just speaking to their base, but they won't just get their base. Uh, uh, more than just more than core Trump voters will vote for Mr. Trump. Right. So, like, I, I want to talk about ideo- um, ideology a little bit later, but let, yeah. let, let's get to the main thrust of your argument here, which is that you start your piece by saying that a Democratic win feels inevitable at the moment, a Biden and Harris win, which my first thought when I read that was, well, it did in 2016 too, right? Sure. And, and, sure. and you go on to say that history goes the way it is pushed. So what, what do you mean that history goes the way it is pushed? And, and what are the factors pushing a Trump win at the moment? Yeah, well, there's, what I mean by that is that there's a large, uh, you know, kind of popular ideology um, that generally speaking uh, on the more liberal progressive side, which is that history has a kind of direction, has a kind of moral compass and moves a certain way. And that if you can kind of align with that and you're on the quote right side of history, that's just not my experience in studying history. It's more chaotic than that. Uh, it's more random than that. And history itself basically follows where people will, will make it go. Uh, and that can go in the morally right or wrong direction. Frankly, that doesn't much matter. Uh, what matters is who pushes it. And the factor is pushing the, you know, let's say give a, a tailwind to Mr. Trump that will push him along, regardless of how badly he runs this race, regardless even of how badly he botches the pandemic response, have to do with race on the one hand um, and with the structure of the American economy on the other. And they're, they're quite deep rooted. Um, and I'll just say, you know, first about, about race. I, I'm not making this argument here that every Trump voter is a white supremacist or a white nationalist. No. But what I am saying is that overwhelmingly Trump voters are white or consider themselves to be white. And they um, are comfortable with an idea of the United States in which people who hold power, people who are on television, people who speak with authority, people who are visible and audible are white. And Trump, more than any recent president, speaks directly to that longing or to that sort of sense of that's when America made sense. Right. And or that's when that's an American kind of was comfortable, frankly, for for the majority of people who are white. And that's a that gives him a very powerful tailwind that is not to be underestimated. Um, it's not to be exaggerated either. And, and, you know, there's plenty of evidence that many people in the United States quite recently actually have had quite a change of heart on the nature of racial conflict in the United States. But there's a lot of people in the states that will decide this election who feel perfectly comfortable with a president who speaks to racial resentments that the way Mr. Trump does, and more especially his sort of sense, his obvious sense, that he just doesn't seem to care that a lot of black Americans um, quite rightly feel uh, harassed by the police or worse by the police and feel themselves to be marginalized. He just doesn't care. And that is a actually quite a, a bit of strength for him with a lot of voters. There's been a lot of talk in Canada recently about um, redefining racism to include a conversation around systematic racism or systemic, you know, well, institutional racism, right? And yep. I, I feel like that sort of redef- redefinition needs to happen with white supremacy as well. When we talk about white supremacy, we, sure. don't, we don't necessarily mean neo-Nazis, right? We don't necessarily mean skinheads. We don't necessarily mean the KKK. That's exactly right. So what does white That's supremacy exactly right. mean? So, yeah, yeah. So I'll just say, so, I mean, there are ways that this is to be noted, right, and not to be forgotten, that Mr. Trump clearly puts on olive branch 
two actual white supremacists, like committed white supremacists and neo-Nazis. But the people, the vast majority of people who will, who will decide this election and vote for him aren't that. They, but they do have a vague sense, um, a vague but important sense that the quote unquote real Americans really tend to be white. That Americans, America was built by white settlers. That line right there, I, I can't tell you how many times as an American growing up in the United States, I heard some version of that, that American, America was built by the, the frontiersmen, the settlers. And, well, they were white, right? So, I mean, it, there's this real powerful narrative of that that's what America was built by and by whom. And that remains powerful. It doesn't mean necessarily that they hold deep prejudices or would be cruel personally to a black person or to an indigenous person that they meet, it means that they have the vague sense that, yeah, but the real United States are, are, are just people who look like us. And that simple sentiment, it might not sound, well, it, no, it, it doesn't, they don't think of themselves necessarily as big racist at all, but it has this very powerful way to sort of push things in the direction of people like Mr. Trump who scoff at institutional racism who scoff at the idea that there's something called white privilege and who just don't want to hear this anymore. And he really does tap into the sense that uh, among a lot of generally older, generally white uh, voters, they just don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hear about how, um, you know, the big making of the United States pushed aside and nearly destroyed indigenous people. They don't want to hear about slavery anymore because in their minds, they have nothing to do with it. And Mr. Trump allows them to be comfortable again um, with their understanding of what the real nation is. Right. And it was, it's that kind of, um, cultural progression, especially that happened under, uh, Obama. And in my country yeah. at the moment, New Zealand is happening under Jacinda Ardern, where, you yeah. know, there's, there's a lot of cultural, cultural evolution. And a lot of the country is getting sick of hearing about gender neutral toilets, you know, and they're yeah. getting sick of yeah. hearing about safe spaces. And, and you say that this really goes back to, um, well, maybe even further, obviously further, but at some point to a cultural extent, the 1960s, which is a really interesting yeah. period because the right uses this for two reasons, right? They can point to one voter base and say, look, look at how much gain you got back then. Look how much we gave you back then. Yeah. And they can point to another voter base and say, look at the 1960s. That's when everything went wrong. And if this happens again, it's going to be hell. And so that's why you have to vote for this white, right. this white supremacist. <laughs> That's right. And one could also say this way. So um, to the idea that, you know, you know, kind of we took care of these problems in the 1960s, just to be clear, in, in the United States example, um, I mean, black Americans, most notably, did not have citizenship rights, even though bare citizenship rights, even the jury citizenship rights of voting, for example, or of basic access to to fair trials until the mid 1960s. So, you know, it's within living memory, of course, of people who were not allowed to vote. So, you know, the, the, that's the that's to be clear about that. But, you know, that that period, which is often called the second reconstruction in the United States, um, first reconstruction after being after the Civil War 100 years earlier, that it did change um, the political nation. It did broaden uh, the, the 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 reach of American culture. It did broaden the, the, the spectrum of who could be an American. And there should be no question that there's been enormous cultural changes um, and that black and brown people are much more visible in positions of authority and media positions in uh, political positions, uh, you know, in, in present day America. And that 
makes a lot of white Americans just a little bit uneasy. It makes some very uneasy, but it makes some just a little uneasy. And Mr. Trump speaks to them all the time. You know, so uh, what comes to mind most recently is there was an interview being done uh, with him about a month ago with Mr. Trump. And uh, the reporter noted, well, you know, what do you say about all of the black Americans who have been killed by by police? And what the person meant is at a rate far higher than white people are killed by police. And Mr. Trump just said, yeah, but so are white people. You know, what a terrible thing to say. And that's that's so that's it right there. That sort of sense of I don't want to hear it anymore. I want to be comfortable in my skin and I want to be um, safe again in a kind of safe space of the nation being white. To quote the uh, the current opposition leader in New Zealand, Judith Collins, is there something wrong with me being white? Yeah, no, and that's a very it's a common sentiment, and it's 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 you know it's for those and myself included who really hope that Mr. Trump is defeated. He's not to be underestimated because he actually speaks in this very powerful way to a quite large number of people who um, you know don't consider themselves to be rank reactionaries, don't consider themselves even be very political. That, that's actually a common thing. A lot of Americans find themselves to be just kind of turned off by the entire charade and, and sound and fury of American politics. They kind of like saying that they're not very political. A lot of them, a lot of them vote with Trump, and um, a lot that has to do a lot that has to do with with race. And you know, I'll just say as a if this needs to be you know stated again, um, in 2016, based on quite accurate exit polling. Mr. Trump won every single white demographic, right? So he won rich white people, poor white people, college-educated people, not college-educated white people. He did the best among non-college-educated white men, but he won all of the demographic groups and, you know, the white coalition. And I think he won't get the same, he won't, you know, kind of go across the board like that again. I could really see white women actually going slightly towards white um, but that is not to be underestimated or kind of scoffed at uh, um, by by Biden or the Democrats. Yeah, well, more Americans than uh, than ever are dependent on um, labor wages, and uh, yeah. le- fewer le- the least Americans than ever are self-employed, uh, which gives great yeah. power to employers. Employers who run uh, not necessarily huge businesses, but, you know, maybe like landscaping companies or boat repair companies, those kind of gated community kind of employers. And those people vote for Trump. Uh, They lean, I'll say those people might very well vote for Trump for um, an important reason, which is that besides his um, highly unconventional way of speaking and his highly unconventional, his disdain for many political protocols, Mr. Trump is in many ways fairly conventional conservative when it comes to taxes and regulation. He's really not that different from most Republicans, maybe a little bit more extreme. Um, and there is a bit about tariffs, but he's actually fairly you know, con- basic about that. And basically speaking, business owners, employers prefer low tax environments and prefer low regulation environments. And I think it's just worth noting that in the United States, more so than in most Western democracies, employers also have certain power certain degrees of power that they don't have in, in New Zealand, in Australia, in France, in Canada, um, because of the nature of the American economy. So the most obvious example for me is healthcare. Um, the vast majority of most American employees and the vast majority of Americans are employees, get their health insurance from their employer, not from the government, which means that you are, frankly, dependent, at least 
you know, while you're employed uh, on your boss for health insurance. And that is a quiet power not to be underestimated. Um, I know many people personally who stay in jobs that they loathe for which they are overqualified or whatever else because they need health insurance. And that's a big deal. It means that employers, uh, their kind of idea about what should happen passes for common sense quite a lot. And it does give Mr. Trump a big, um, a powerful, although not terribly numerous, group of people who, who lean towards his policy. We were joking on the show last week after that, that Biden, Biden interview where um, he asked the anchor if he was a junkie. Um, so we, we were joking on the show last week that the Biden-Harris campaign slogan should be like, come on, man. And because that's effectively what they're selling. There's, I can't really discern any real new policy positions. There is no real like forward vision. There's just, come on, you don't, you want to go back to how things were in 2015. And if there are pushing factors for history, that that history grapples on to such as power structures and uh, in a racial sense or an economic sense, is there anything about the current alternative to that that is that is gripping with any structures, maybe like uh, you know liberal consciousness or um, you know progressiveness, and because if that is what the Biden Harrison campaign is latching onto to push them into an election victory, that seems like much the same things that the Hillary um, God yeah. I've gotten who she was running with, Hillary but the, yeah. yeah yeah yeah, yeah uh, uh, that the same thing that her campaign was latching onto in 2016. I think that's so I would say this. I would say that basically the Biden Harris message is competent governance and basic decency. Those are its sort of this is what we're gonna do, this is what we offer. But the reason that's different, and I think you're basically right about the policy proposals, it's largely the probably the most basic difference now would be we're not gonna have another huge round of tax cuts, which the Trump administration certainly would want, and we're not going to scrap Obamacare. We'll we'll rescue Obamacare, which is on life support now because of uh, Mr. Trump. Um, but yeah, besides those two, it's come on, you know, basic governance, basic competence and basic decency. However, there is a, the pandemic changes, not everything, but it could change everything because it throws into light the need for competent governance. And um, I mean, you know, so ranging between Canada and New Zealand, ranging from very impressive to basically okay responses to the pandemic, those have been fairly successful by the political groups in those countries that range widely ideologically, right? So in Canada, you have provinces run by conservatives and run by um, liberals and NDP members who have all done more or less the same thing. And competent governance, um, basic competent administration of health is more, you know, it's never been more important. And so I think that will be a major part of the Biden-Harris ticket. It has a power and relevance and vehemence that it did not have, of course, uh, in 2016. Um, but overall, I think it's, you're correct. It's basically the Biden-Harris argument is, come on, we don't, we can't have more of this. Um, let's be decent and competent. I, I just want to quickly ask like a very big question. I'm sorry, but I want to pick sure. your brains at it, no. which is that... Over the past 40 years, and, and seeing some of the speeches in the DNC, this really rung home for me with you know the presence of Colin Powell, John Kasich. We've seen yeah. the political spectrum just progressively drift to the right. So 
you know, in my country, New Zealand, we talk about Labour as a centre-left party because in political history they have been, in political reality in 2020, they're actually maybe a centrist to, to centre-right party. At the DNC, yeah. there was a lot of talk about opportunity, and that's the kind yeah. of language that Republicans used in the 80s and 90s quite a lot. Sure. Um, sure. Another example, maybe um, the fawning over George Bush, giving um, yep. Michelle Obama candy at John McCain's funeral. Uh, yep. He looks like an angel compared to Trump at the moment. We seem to forget that he and Cheney provided over one of the most, you know, catastrophic wars in, in yep. living memory. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Uh, are we forgetting our political history? And in terms of like we look at Trump and think about how bad he is, and we um, uh, the 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 left might um, embrace people like Bush or like Colin Powell a lot more easily because th that history is just falling away <laughs> like wet cake. Yeah, yeah. I think I am fairly convinced by an argument that for the past fifty years, past half century the most powerful global ideology has been neoliberalism, which is to say that the most dominant idea about how things should go is to basically reduce the scale of the state uh, to protecting property and investments, uh, limiting it as much as possible and allowing um, private enterprise to do its thing. I still think we're in that phase, although it's perhaps loosening a bit, but you can see this all over the place, right? So you can see this in the Democrats move um, to the center right on political economic questions, not on cultural or racial questions, but on political economic questions, the Clinton years, they shifted explicitly to the right. Uh, the Democratic Leadership Council will tell you all about this. It's, it's, it's the policies of and rather than or, which is to say, we're not really going to back union, uh, labor anymore. We'll do labor and capital. Um, I still think we're in this moment. I think Mr. Obama was largely in that paradigm and I think Mr. Trump is largely in that paradigm. Um, so I think so. I, I think that that's the case. But there are real differences in what kind of neoliberal you are, or what, to what degree one is. And there are, you know, really important distinctions between a Biden form of, well, let's have opportunity, but kind of spread it out a bit and competently govern things, to a kind of um, almost like helter skelter politics, uh, also neoliberal of Mr. Trump. Um, but if I could just add one last part of that, which is that I also think that the left, as distinct from liberal, have really come back in the United States because they're just done with this. And you do have, you know, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon wasn't just a phenomenon. It, it, it wasn't just a, a one-off thing. There are a large number of, of people um, who previously would not have fit into and probably don't now belong to unions. Union membership is down to 6% in the private sector in the United States. Um, they have no basis in a kind of labor background, but they're not buying what capitalism is selling. And they're seeing their lives, they're interpreting at least, that their life is not going to be about opportunity. It's going to be about debt. It's going to be about um, uh, the gig economy. It's going to be about insecurity. And they're really gravitating to a left politics. Um, that rejects uh, neoliberalism entirely, and that this year will hold its nose and vote for Biden, but won't be there for Mr. Biden, you know, once he starts to talk about the need to trim entitlements or the need to um, uh, target certain tax cuts. So I, I think that we're still in the neoliberal age, 
but I think it's going to end um, one way or the other. Mm, it, it doesn't seem too sustainable going forward. Um, I don't think so. No, yeah. I don't think so. And I, I, I think it really has. So, I mean, put it this way, the center left, we'll call that the Democrats. I think they will hold in 2020 because of Trump. I mean, Trump is an extraordinary unifier, you know, in that way. Um, but there are real, but that's just because of Trump. And, and there are real uh, uh, insurgents on insurgencies on the left. Uh, we heard from, from her, from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for 60 seconds. That's, she's going to have more than 60 seconds of airtime over the next four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll, we will not hear the last of, um, of, a, of a resurgent left uh, in, in much of the West. 